Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello wherever you are and welcome to another edition of Diffusion. Now whilst the rest of the Diffusion team are out making groundbreaking science, communicating science somewhere in Australia, or simply slacking off, this week the remainder of the team, i.e. myself, Mark West, and Celine Steinfeld, are going to bring to your ears the latest and greatest in science news. How are you, Celine? Very good this morning. Thanks, Mike. That's good. So, this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the science of wine, and we're also going to have a chat about communicating science to all ages and all areas of society. But first off, here is the news with Mark and Celine. a recent debate about whether daylight savings saves energy or not. Two scientists from the University of California in Berkeley wanted to test the popular idea that lengthening the period when clocks are put forward will reduce electricity use by delivering an extra hour of evening daylight. In other studies, mostly based on simulations, researchers have estimated that extending daylight saving could cut electricity demand from 0.6% to 3.5%, so the authors say. So given this, the environmental concerns and the high cost of fuel are pushing countries to consider, consider starting daylight savings earlier. The US, for example, started daylight savings two weeks ago, uh, about three weeks earlier than normal, to cut energy consumption by 1%. But the two scientists challenge whether such moves save energy by studying Australia's experience around the time of the 2000 Olympics. For their experiment, they con- compared energy use in the states of Victoria and South Australia around the time that Sydney, New South Wales, was hosting the Games. Normally, those three states switched to daylight saving time in late October, But that year, Victoria and New South Wales started in late August to facilitate the Olympics. Facing rural opposition, however, neighbouring South Australia kept its start date in October. When Kellogg and Wolfe looked at the detailed data on half-hourly electricity consumption and weather conditions in Victoria and South Australia during September and October, they found that uh, the extension failed to conserve electricity. The point estimates suggest that energy consumption increased rather than decreased and the the within-day usage pattern changed substantially, leading to a high morning peak load. Less lighting and heating are required in the evening. However, demand increases in the morning, particularly from 7 to 8 a.m. It's driven by reduced sunlight and lower temperatures. Overall, these two effects cancel each other out, they say. Seven months after being stripped of its planethood by an international scientific organisation, Pluto found a loyal friend in New Mexico. Legislators have introduced a resolution that would restore the newly classified dwarf planet, or planetoid, back to its former status. The bill also sets a special day aside to honour Pluto, and Pluto Day is the 13th of March. 
Be it resolved by the legislature of the state of New Mexico that as Pluto passes overhead through New Mexico's excellent night skies, it be declared a planet, reads the bill, which was introduced by Joni Marie Gutierrez and then apparently tabled for future consideration. Californian lawmakers also did something very similar last year. They said that the, quote, downgrading of Pluto reduces the number of planets available for legislative leaders to hide redistricting legislation and other inconvenient political reform measures. So there you go. The state claimed special affection for Pluto as it shares the name of California's most famous animated dog and has a special connection to Californian history and culture. So we're really talking science, the big science here. Legislators also said downgrading Pluto's status will cause, quote, psychological harm to some Californians who question their place in the universe and worry about the instability of universal constants. It seems to me that Californians should probably be looking a little more inward than outward if they're worried about this type of thing. Now, if you're thinking of a, uh, a costume to wear to your next party or even down to the bar tonight, have a think about this. Australian researchers have combined art and science to make dresses from fermented fabric, using bacteria to grow slimy dresses from wine and beer. Gary Cass, who works on the Microbe Project at the University of Western Australia, says, We're looking at the dresses to provoke some discussion about future fashions, about the possibility of other material we can use instead of our normal cottons and silks. Cass is a laboratory technician from the university who, among other things, writes science fiction. He was inspired to grow these dresses when he was working in a vineyard many years ago. He noticed that when oxygen got into the vats and turned the wine into vinegar, a slimy rubbery layer grew on top. This layer was cellulose produced by acetobacter bacteria as a waste product when they convert wine into vinegar. To ferment fabrics, Cass and his colleagues deliberately let vats of wine go off to produce cellulose, and to get the shape of the dress, they lifted the layers of slimy cellulose off and laid them over a deflatable doll. After each dress was complete, they deflated the doll and voila, a perfect intact dress. So next time you go out to the bar and cover yourself in beer, just don't wash. It might turn into your next outfit. take two guys who think they know everything about science and it's probably fair to say it's one of the major scientific issues confronting the world place them in a bar they have found a stream of alcohol 462 million kilometers in length and let them loose with a microphone welcome to the beer drinking scientists from mark and and darren a, a cheers Yes, check out the Beer Drinking Scientists at bds.podbean.com. And whilst you're on the internet, check out the Diffusion site at diffusionradio.com. Here you can pick up show notes and also the podcast. The other beer drinking scientist, Darren Osborne, likes to branch out occasionally and is also a wine drinking scientist. Here he talks to CSIRO's Dr Mandy Walker about the genetic differences between red and white grapes. 
Whether you're sipping back on a glass of Chardonnay or swilling a Cabernet Sauvignon, you may may not realise that the colour of a grape is caused by its genes. I'm joined by Dr Mandy Walker from CSIRO in Adelaide. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you, Darren. Now, first off, I was surprised to learn that white wine is actually a genetic defect from red wine or, or the grapes that they come from. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And it, the reason it's a mutation is that if you think about the, making the red colour, there's lots of steps in the pathway to do that. And then there's boss genes that tell the, the worker genes to make the colour. So yeah, that's the sort of the wild, normal type of um, plant. And if you think about other types of plants that we have, we've got sort of apples that normally would have um, red skins and that red colour in fruit is used by the plants to attract animals and um, other uh, creatures to come along and eat the fruit when it's ripe and disperse the seeds so they can propagate themselves. So so what we're saying is that, that white grapes or green grapes are actually lazier than the red ones because they're not <laughs> putting in that extra effort. Well, they're, they're, yes, they're a bit unusual. So they have a, a change that means that they no longer make the red colour, and that's a mutation. Now, in the research that you've conducted, you've, you've uh, combined some results from researchers in Japan who identified one gene that was responsible for, for producing that colour, and that's the antikinins. What was it that you've discovered recently? Well, we discovered that the, on the chromosome next to the gene that they discovered, there was another gene that's very, very similar. And so basically, it's the same sort of boss gene. It's a controlling gene that tells the worker genes to make the anthocyanin and the colour. And you can imagine the situation if there's you know, two bosses in the office. If one of them goes out, the, the workers still keep working. But if you mutate both of them, or both the bosses go out of the, the office, then the workers start to slack off and go on holidays. And that's what's happened in the white grapes. So are you pretty certain that it's just the two genes that are involved in this colour process, or could there be more? Well, there are more genes involved in making the antimine and colour. It's quite a complex chemical, and so there's a lot of enzymatic steps that are encoded by different genes. And there are also other BOSS genes. But as far as we know in white grapes, those BOSS genes and those worker genes are still present and could still perform their function if these two BOSS genes that we've identified were doing their own job. So now that we know what gene, which genes within the, the grape can de, um, determine whether it's going to be a red grape or a white one, what are the benefits of, of actually having that information? Well, this information is really has a direct use in breeding programs. So now we can look at red grapes and predict, if we use those as a parent in a cross, what percentage of the offspring will have red grapes versus white grapes. So we can actually start to target um, the type of breeding that we do for both table grapes and for wine grapes. Then we can also look at those little progeny, the little seedlings that come from that cross, and predict what type of um, grapes they will have when they grow up and mature. And that takes several years planting them out in the vineyard. So if we can target what we want and say, okay, what we want is a red grape that will uh, replace Cabernet, for example, then we can just throw away all the white seedlings and not plant them out. That saves a huge amount of money and effort in a breeding program. So, so essentially we, we're coming up with a, a much more scientific or objective way of being able to determine what colour these grapes will be before, well before we have in the past. That's right. So, so we've seen that there's a genetic difference between the white and the red um, grape varieties. Are there differences bet- within the, the actual colours themselves, say between a Chardonnay and a Riesling or a Merlot and a Cabernet? Well, what we found with the white grapes is that basically the two changes in the two genes are the same in nearly all the white grapes we've looked at. And that's 
looking at about 55 different cultivars from various genetic origins. So I've tried to choose things that are as genetically different as possible. But when we look at the red grapes, the, the colour genes, the two genes, are slightly different from each other in some cultivars. And that suggests that the red genes have a much more ancient origin than the white genes. And is there any chance that these particular genes that control the colour influence the flavour? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. The tannins um, that are found in grapes are very closely related to anthocyanins. And tannins give that astringency or mouthfeel uh, to wine and fruit. And because they're so closely chemically related, they're made by the same type of pathway. So you can imagine if you alter the amount of anthocyanin that's made in a plant, you might also alter the amount of tannin. So grape, white grapes can be a little bit more tannic or astringent than the red grapes. And so that's one of the reasons why when great, great um, people are making wine, they don't leave the white wine on the skins to extract those extra tannins. Mm-hmm. So in the past, CSIRO have, been in, have actually created a number of different grape varieties, such as Tarango and Sienna. Do you think this sort of research might uh, sort of go into, to, into developing newer ones? I think that's quite possible. And one of the things we have at Mildura um, at Mabine is a table grape breeding program and so we can now use the technology that we've developed to target our table grapes to produce new varieties. And one very final question. Do you think it would be possible or do you think down the track that uh, that this sort of research might be used to actually genetically modify grapes to improve colour or flavour? That's certainly one of the things that we could do with the tools that we now have. Um, at this point in time, though, the Australian grape industry would not be prepared to accept transgenic grapevines. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Manny Walker, for the time, and uh, I'll sit back and uh, think a little bit more over a glass of wine. Thank you. Thanks for that insight, Darren, and um, red or white grapes, all wine tastes good to me.
was an old song from back when I was at school, from the 90s. Itchy and scratchy with sweetness and light. One of our diffusionites, Catherine, is currently away with Questacon. And on the line, we've got the manager of Questacon Outreach in Sydney, Jenny Lynch, on the line. How are you going, Jenny? Um, very well, thank you, Mark. Now, you guys are doing exciting things, bringing science to the public on the New South Wales South Coast at the moment, and science to kids. What exactly are you up to? Uh, well, we've got a range of outreach programs that we run from Questacon's Sydney office. Uh, we do a lot of things in metropolitan Sydney, and we're just starting up a new program which we'll tour nationally, which is for younger children. Oh, so wow. we, we reach... Um, groups in a number of different ways with hands-on activities and also with science shows. And uh, we've gone into doing some shopping centre shows in recent years as well. Oh, very cool. So how young do you guys go? We're going much younger than we have in the past. We've previously focused on sort of primary and secondary school students, but now we're going down to as young as one- and two-year-olds. So mm. it's creating new challenges for us as to how we give them fun science experiences. Yeah, how on earth do you con- uh, communicate science to one- and two-year-olds? Well, I think very young children are quite a lot like scientists themselves because <laughs> they're always yeah. testing the world around them and looking at things, they observe things, and they're just like sponges. They soak up information and everything, well, a lot of things are new to them, so they're always testing things and experimenting just naturally. Mm. Uh, so it's providing them with opportunities to discover new things about the world around them. That's that's what we're trying to do, whether it's about how different things that make sound or ways that they can look at light in different ways and look at colours. So it's all about experiences and sensory experiences for that age group. And why have you chosen kids as a as a focus? I, I guess Questacon tries to communicate science to all age groups, but for very young children we focus on making it really fun. And more and more it's becoming important for, for people to, to find out about science because that's this society is full of technology and lots of decisions that society makes to do with technology, whether it's medical technology or information technology. So the, the more that the general public understands about science, the more they, they can make informed decisions. And the younger that starts, I guess, the better. It's almost a, a rite of passage for Australian school kids to catch the bus down to or up to Canberra and visit Questacon. Um, I remember I did that for a while back. Mm, me too. But a, a, so you're going nationally with this program. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's right. Well, Questacon runs a, a range of different national outreach programs, so this is adding to the repertoire. We have a maths program that tours nationally and uh, a, show, a show about innovation, which is for secondary school students. And we have a specialised group within Questacon Outreach that focuses on Indigenous communities and taking science programs to them. And you, about six years ago, you did that yourself, I'm, I I believe, with the Questacon Science Circus. I'll admit my own... Conflict of interest. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll admit my own conflict of interest and, um, you know, association with that program because I did it the year after you. But um, so you've also been out and done communicating to uh, communicating science to Indigenous groups out in the outback as well. Yes, that's right. I, did, I was in the Shell Questacon Science Circus back in 2000 and part of that was a remote visit to... Um, some communities in the Pitch and Jarrah lands in the centre of Australia. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I went to Western Australia to the um, Pilbara region, travelled all around um, communities around there as well. Mm. And was that different to the way that you targeted, well, that you communicated with um, kids from the city? 
The program we run in Sydney in the metropolitan area is with demonstrations, so it's shows and we we perform to audiences of up to about 130 students and they sit and they watch a show and we, we get them to participate. We have audience participation and things, but they're, they're really watching and listening a lot. Uh, in the Indigenous communities, it's more a hands-on experience. A lot of the children there don't necessarily have good English skills. They might speak five other languages and English is their sixth language, so, um, so it's more about um, visual and and, and hands-on experiences rather than language-based things, which we might use more in um, in a metropolitan school. So you guys must have some very varied skills, really, teaching to one-year-olds, to um, Indigenous communities with people that don't have um, English as a first language. I'm just giving you a boost here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for that, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be yeah, interested to... I, I guess you just um, adapt to the situation, and a lot of the time it's the same. I mean, we're we're all living in the same world. We have the same experiences of physical phenomena and things, so it's just presenting them in different ways, and, and everyone enjoying it. It's all about having fun with it as well. I'd be interested to find out what's your... I, I know that you guys do some um, funky experiments and demonstrations on stage. What's your favourite, or what do you think is your most exciting experiment? favourite one, I think it's probably the flaming bubble where we get someone to dip their hand in bubble mix and then use a flammable gas to inflate a bubble on their hand and then light that bubble so the the bubble goes up in flames on someone's hand but their hand's protected by the bubble mix so they don't get burnt or anything. That that looks fairly impressive. That is so cool. How did you get that through, you know, Questacon's OH&S committee? (laughs) Oh, it's just a matter of having highly trained staff who <laughs> know what they're doing. We're all scientists. You can trust us. We'll, we'll be fine. <laughs> I always like the idea of being able to put your hand quickly into liquid nitrogen and then pulling it out. And smashing it on the floor. Well, no. <laughs> no, the point being your hand doesn't freeze because there's a layer of, you know, water oh. and stuff on it. Oh. But it, I was never allowed to do that, which is very sad. Yeah, um, I like the idea of it. I like the idea of somebody else doing it. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's <not> <laughs> yeah I know that there's a presenters at the Wollongong Science Centre, which is another great science centre um, just south of Sydney. Um, they, they sometimes pour liquid nitrogen over their hand. That, that impresses a lot of kids. They tell us about it when we visit their schools in Sydney. They say they've been to Wollongong and they, they want us to pour it over our hands, but we're not quite brave enough to do it. <laughs> I can remember a very cool story because these people thought they could put liquid nitrogen on their tongues, and apparently that, that's okay too, although I wouldn't recommend doing that to anybody. Um, but this bloke, he then swallowed the liquid nitrogen and then, because the liquid nitrogen expands to 100 times its size or whatever it does, it punctured his lungs and his esophagus, and he was pretty much screwed. Yeah, so, I've heard about that too. He did survive, but he was, um, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope we don't read about you guys dying in some horrible accident down in Mossvale. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. So if, if any of our listeners are interested in finding out um, to what school uh, you're coming to next or where you're going, is there any way we can find out? Well, there's the Questacon website, which is www.questacon.edu.au, and our travelling programs are under the the name Outreach. So if you look for Outreach on the Questacon website, that'll tell you where people are going, where they're heading to, and all the different programs we have operating all over uh, all over Australia. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jenny, for that. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, thank you very much, Jenny, for Thanks. chatting to us. Great to talk to you. Cool. I was walking down the street on a sunny day. Hubba, 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 hubba. I feel it in my bones as I have my way. Hubba, 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 hubba.
hubba, 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 hubba. I'm a happy boy. I'm a happy boy. Oh, ain't it good when things are going your way? Hey, hey, my little dog Spot got hit by a car. Hubba, 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 hubba. Put his guts in a box and put him in a drawer. Hubba, 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 hubba. Oh, I'm a happy boy. Oh, I'm a happy boy. Oh, ain't it good when things are going your way? Hey, hey. That song was Happy Boy by the Beat Farmers. And over to you, Mr. Happy Boy in the studio. Well, thanks, Celine, but I'm no longer a very happy boy because this is the end of Diffusion for this week. It's very sad. But Diffusion has been brought to you out of the UTS studios across 2SCR, across Sydney, and also across the community radio network all across Australia. If you want to check out our podcast and our website, go to www.diffusionradio.com. If you want to contact us, if you want to say hi, if you want to give us any tips, any story ideas, criticise us or you just are a bit lonely, write to diffusion at 2ser.com. Now we'll leave you with Red Hot Chili Peppers, Other Side. Did you know, Celine, that chilies target the same pain receptors as some spiders? There you go. See you next week. How long, See ya. How long will I slide separate myself? I don't. Believe it's been Slitting my throat is all I ever I heard your voice through a photograph I thought it had been brought up the past oh, Won't you know you can never go back I gotta take it on the other side Centuries I what it meant to Okay.